What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here. Welcome to another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my guest is record label magnate, Alligators chairman and CEO, Mr. Bruce Aguilar, who has signed and produced some of the greatest blues albums of the 20th century. Check out my hour-long conversation with a true legend. It's nice to, to see you after this crazy year. No kidding. No kidding. I mean, I was like... It, you know, we usually hop out of Chicago. We have our, our yearly lunch, talk about all things blues, <laughs> all things Chicago, gossip. Man, it's, it's just been strange, you know, to like to just be sidelined. You know, you never in a million years would you think like that. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was lucky enough to have a couple of, of video gigs that I was able to attend recently. So it isn't like I've had no live music, but it's been pretty close to no live music. Yeah, I mean... What do you what do you think about that? Like, what do you think about the 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 pivot to the two dimensional live stream gigs? Do you think it helps or hurts or you know, or is it kind of just uh, you know, kind of coasting in neutral for a minute? Well, I think it helps the artists kind of keep their chops up, and uh, also some of them are really good at it and right. and are able to talk to an invisible audience as though there's somebody really there. Um, I also think that it's great to have the music available. I much prefer live real time. I don't look at a lot of video concerts, a lot of recorded concerts, right. because I feel like nothing spontaneous is going to happen. You know, the, yeah. the thing that you want most, the, the, the moment in which somebody reaches uh, inspiration inspired by the audience and, and the moment, uh, you don't see that much because it's already done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, plus, you know, now I feel like if, if you watch a DVD, you're like, you're like, how much has this been nipped and tucked? And, you know, because you could, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of that sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, I that that mistake just went away. You know, I mean, I, I, I remember uh, Radio City Music Hall, that DVD, I, I just landed, I stuck the landing on a note that was just blatantly in the wrong key. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I went to my producer, Kevin Sherman. I'm like, you know, you want to go into a studio and we could fix it, maybe try to match the sound. He goes, he goes, no, I already fixed it. I'm like, how? He goes, well, you just take Melodyne and put the note where it's supposed to be. I'm like, you can get in there. And like, I'm like, I was like, okay. You know, so we, we're not supposed to tell people this because they'll know we can actually fix screwed up performances in the studio. I, I know. I mean, it's, it, it's like, I mean, going back to when you first started, you know, producing records, I mean, to where it is now, you know, how, how, how much of the technology do you embrace or do you still try to keep that raw spontaneity in, in, in the record-making process? I, I walk a fine line. First of all, I love recording live where right. everybody is playing together and feeding each other the feel, the music. And I always set it up in the studio so everyone has sight lines. Uh, right. Very often, if I have a guitar player um, who is also the singer, I will bring him into the booth with me Mm -hmm. uh, so that the other musicians are looking at the window and right. they're seeing the, the producer, uh, which I like to call myself, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the artist, so they know that all the direction is coming from one place. So right. then the engineer will, and I will monitor with, uh, with headphones. Right. So the artist will do a live vocal and a live solo, and then if we're not happy with them, we can do them over. Right. Uh, but I try to capture that live excitement. And of course no matter how rehearsed the band may be, if the the lead artist is inspired to another 12 bars or another 24 bars, the guys can see it coming and feel it coming and, and play to that 
rather right. than play to, oh, the, you know, the vocal is coming next or the breakdown is coming next. Um, I, I like having the fun of having everybody there like a gig right. uh, and, and, uh, and laughing or sometimes yelling at each other. That right. happens too. <laughs> uh, but I, what I try to do is I try to record and manufacture the, if necessary, manufacture the performance that they wanted to deliver. Right. Um, so sometimes I'll leave in some, some cool flaws. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if I, if I think that they're, they're painful, like the note you hit, right. um, you know, I'll go in and take them out. And right. luckily I work with some very talented engineers because you don't want me anywhere near a knob or a fader. Right. You know, I'll screw it up. Right. Do you, um, you know, um, when you, when you were recording like, like Hound Dog Taylor, how did you know you had the take? Because it's, it was pretty, th- those records are legendary, you know, and, 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 but they're so raw. Did you go to him and be like, Hey man, can we get another one of those? Or was it just, he's good. Let's just, we captured the moment. Well, we tried to do my, my co-producer Wesley race and I tried to do a couple of takes of everything. And right. we recorded that first album. Now we recorded the first album direct to two track. I couldn't right. afford multi-track recording and it was right. 1971. So I think the studios, the maximum tracks the studio had was probably four. Right. So we just set the whole band up, you know, right, right. Like they set up in a club with Hound Dog on our left playing right. through his, uh, his uh, Sears and Roebuck Silvertone amplifier made by Dan Electro. Right. For, for for I assume that plenty of guitar nerds are watching this, so they probably want to want to know. Um, and he was playing his Kingston guitar from the makers of Tysco Del Rey. Right. Uh, Brewer Phelps was playing uh, an ancient Telecaster. Uh, no bass player in that band, so right. he was playing the bass lines on guitar. Um, and I had actually recently gotten a used Fender concert uh, mm-hmm. that he was playing through, and then Ted Harvey was in the middle between them. Um, on, he had an ancient Slingerland kit, uh, just very basic. And he would always, he played on a chair. He couldn't play on a drum throne and right. he tied, he tied the bass drum to the chair so it wouldn't slide. <laughs> uh, so he had clothesline. Right. Uh, and, and, um, Hound Dog was, you know, he, he played sitting down cause he had bad feet. Uh, mm-hmm. though he did a better show sitting down than most people do standing up. Right. Uh, it was so much fun to watch. And the, the mic was right next to him. So you can actually hear uh, when he goes over to sing, the sound of the guitar changes a little because his head is blocking the, the guitar sound that was going through the, the vocal mic. Right. Also, they had, they had no experience in the studio and, and I didn't want them to be thinking about the studio at all. I told them, play as loud as you want. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but I also thought that headphones might impair them. You know, It's tricky with headphones for people who haven't been in the studio I remember I was in the studio helping Carrie Bell on an album and, and we had cut one song that he hadn't sung a whole lot of times. And right. I was in the control room and he was out there re-singing it and stumbling because he couldn't find his, his starting spots on various verses. Yeah. Uh, and so I went out to help thinking I would help him. And I put on the headphones and immediately became completely lost. Right. And could, it was having exactly the same problem he was having. Right. So headphones are, are funny. So instead of doing headphones, I set up monitors. Yeah. A- and part of the reason that their record sounds ambient is you're hearing a little bit of at least the vocals coming back through the monitors. So right. so the room feel plus plus the studio had linoleum floors 
and hard walls. So it was not uh, padded down at all. Yeah, uh, quite the contrary. And um, and we, we we went in for two nights. In fact, um, I don't know when this will be will be aired, but um, May twenty fourth is the fiftieth anniversary of the first alligator session with right. Howard Taylor. And then we wow. went in the following week and recorded a lot of the same songs again. But then, just when I thought you know we had a list of songs, just when I thought we were done. He starts whipping out songs I've never heard him do before. And I've right. heard him a hundred times. And the very first song on that record, She's Gone, mm-hmm. was a song that we had never heard him play before. Right. Wow. So it's, you know, speaking of the 50th anniversary, you founded the label because you worked before, before you founded Alligator Records, you worked for, uh, for Delmark Records, the legendary right. Chicago. And, and they did, Bob didn't want to cut hound dog tail and you're like i'm gonna do it yeah and 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 you, you founded the label so the so the legend is told well no the legend is true i was working for bob kester who just passed uh, passed away uh, last week at the age of 88 who was oh, a hero and, and mentor to me uh but he had heard hound dog taylor sitting in and sitting in generally hound dog was a disaster he had his own rhythm sense and the first time i saw him he was sitting in and no song lasted more than about 40 seconds because the band couldn't find the pocket. Right. So they would stop or he would stop. Then he'd tell a joke and the, you couldn't understand the joke at all. He had right. a real thick Mississippi accent and he was laughing so hard and he'd laugh and he'd bury his, his, his uh, mouth in his hand while he was laughing. So yeah. he'd tell a joke that nobody could understand except he was having so much fun telling it. It, it was part of the show. Right. And then he'd light a pell-mell take one hit, put it down on the base of the mic stand and start the next song, which right. then fell apart. Right. So, so Bob was convinced that Hound Dog, as I was at first, that Hound Dog was kind of a, a lovable wannabe musician. Right. But then I saw him with his own band. And I can tell you, it was, it was in January of 1970. I had just moved to Chicago and I ran into him at Teresa's, uh, 40th in Indiana, home of Junior Wells. Right. And uh, he said, I've got a gig on Sunday afternoons at Florence's Lounge. I'd never heard of Florence's Lounge, but he told me what corner it was on. Nobody else had a Sunday afternoon gig. So I decided to go down there the next Sunday to see what was going on. And I walked in and it changed my life. Wow. Uh, that band, the th- first of all, I've never seen three guys have so much fun playing music. Right. You know, the, the, this so, so supposedly sad music, the blues, wasn't sad at all. All right. it could do is make you grin because he was always grinning and stomping his feet left, right, left, right. And Brewer Phillips was, he stood when he played, the other guitar player. And, you know, the famous George Thorogood leg kick. Yeah. Well, he stole that. He stole that for Brewer Phillips, which he, right. will, which he will own. Right. Uh, you know, because he was a, a huge fan of the band. Um, and and they were just grinning and laughing and people were dancing and, of course, drinking a lot because right. that was one of the things you do with Hound Dog Taylor. You drink right. a lot. The band does and, and the audience does. Right. So I just thought, this is the most fun music I've ever heard and it's got to be recorded. And then I couldn't talk my boss into, into recording it. So I'd been to some sessions with him. So I, I had seen studios. When I came to Chicago, I'd never seen a studio. Right. And I remember I went down nine days after I came to Chicago for a session with Junior Wells, Buddy Guy, Louis Myers, Fred Beale, Ernest Johnson, and on piano, the late Otis Spann, maybe the best yeah. blues piano player of all time. Yeah. Uh, and I, it was my first time in the studio. 
There's a picture from that session that's on the record. If they had panned two feet from the left, they would have seen me sitting on the floor going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I was always there at the sessions as gopher. I was never there as a, as a producer to give any artistic input. I was there because somebody needed a sandwich or half a pint. Right. Or sometimes a new set of guitar strings. And right. that's what the gopher goes for. Yeah. But I'd been in the studio maybe a dozen times. And so I, I knew my way around a little bit. And I knew what the band sounded like. Yeah. So that's why I brought in there. And I didn't want to clean, clean up the sound at all. They played with the walls of distortion. They yeah. Partly because they wanted to play as loud as they could because there was no PA. Yeah. So they were used to playing at, at top volume so people could hear them and dance and feel the groove. And so that's what they did in the studio. And I just tried to capture just what Florence's Lounge felt like. Right. Well, that's the thing, you know, like like when I listen to like She's Gone or Shake Your Money Maker and all those classic recordings. And and then I hear, which is great, the the there's like a whole there was like a whole movement with bands like the Black Keys and Jack White and like kind of the low more bluesier mm -hmm. approach to it and they're going back and and like we all do and we're like trying to recreate those those sounds and it's and it's and it's different because it's premeditated what what those what those guys did they that's all they had they had the kingston guitar they had this amp it goes up to this volume and this is our act you know, it was very much, it came from a different spot. You know, it wasn't like they were trying, let, let's try to be hip and lo-fi. You know, let, let's just, let's just do our gig and get paid. Well, sure. And the, nobody had any pedals. Nobody yeah. had any tuners. So, you know, there's some, there's some songs on Hound Dogs records where if you listen really closely, there's some a little dubious tuning right. um, here and there. And of course, they hound dog to played slide and he tuned to an open major right. and it was sometimes d-ish and it was sometimes e-ish mm -hmm. uh, right. but there was no piano or fixed pitch instrument so brewer phillips and hound dog would tune together till it seemed right right and then they, there they go so you, you listen to different takes and the tuning can be a little bit different especially different nights right um now you know looking back it took a lot of nerve to go direct to two track. Right. Um, and, and <laughs> it's funny, but I've become a little more cautious since then. Right. And uh, knowing that, that something could be fixed or that somebody could be isolated. So the mix would be better. Made me want to use modern recording techniques, but I should say also about Hound Dog, that is not a lo-fi record. The, the amps are distorted. Yeah. But that's, right good clean recording of the distortion coming out of the amps exactly. and, it, and, and it's full fidelity. Right. Um, you know, I, when you listen to Muddy Waters chess sides from 1955, they weren't trying to make lo-fi records. They were right. trying to make commercial sounding records. Right. So that was the, the highest fi, if you like, that they could get. Yeah. Um, and none of them were thinking, uh, you know, let's do something cool and old fashioned, you know, and, and Muddy Waters never said, well, gee, I wish I sounded more like Sun House. Yeah. He loved Sun House. He admired Sun House. He was inspired by Sun House, but he didn't want to make a record that sounded like a Sun House record. Yeah, they wanted to, to compete with radio and they wanted the songs to sound modern. And it just, you know, now, one of the things that always intrigued me about Chicago in general was it's like this major metropolis in the Midwest 
So you have the confluence of the Midwest kind of value system, but you also have the, the, the urban center of like a New York or San Francisco or you know any major city. What do you think it was about Chicago that not only attracted all the great bluesmen from Mississippi and Louisiana to migrate to Chicago? What, what was it about Chicago itself, the city that produced such amazing iconic music in, in arguably a short period of time from like 1950 to about 1975 those 25 years where the definitive chicago blues was being produced what do you think it was about the city and who was there at the time that made it so special well first of all almost none of the blues musicians i knew had moved to chicago to play music they had moved to chicago to get a better job right and and the, the word was, if you can't get a job in Chicago, you can't get a job. Yeah. So a lot of people came. I, I mean, I knew a number of people who could, could hardly, if at all, read and write, who were able to get jobs in steel mills and in the stockyards and doing other labor type jobs, which were much better than the horrible sharecropping life they were living in Mississippi or Arkansas or, or Missouri right. or Louisiana. So it was all about coming north for jobs. And, and of course, the people like Muddy Waters who had played juke joints and house parties, uh, you know, came with their guitars. But, you know, Muddy was, was driving a delivery truck for um, a window shade company right. when Sonny Man Slim uh, got him to uh, leave his work and come over to the chess studio to record. Uh, you know, and he was happy to have a, a delivery job. Quiet right. as it's kept, when I met Buddy Guy in 1969, he had, he had, or early 70, he had been on tour with the Rolling Stones and he was still playing Teresa's Lounge. Right. And during the day, he was driving a tow truck. Right. Wow. Great buddy guy in yeah. 1970 was driving a tow truck. Um, you know, Coco Taylor didn't stop cleaning people's houses till almost 1980. So wow. it was all about work. But then this massive number of black people came from the South. And a lot of them from the same Mississippi Delta area. So they were virtually neighbors. I knew streets in Chicago where everybody came from the same town. Right. Where, you know, somebody would come from the town and they'd find somebody else who would come there earlier, like from Greenwood, Mississippi. And the whole block would be people from Greenwood, Mississippi. Right. Uh, so the, that Southern atmosphere stayed there. Beyond that, Chicago was, and to a great extent, is horribly segregated. Right. So there wasn't a lot of, of interaction between white people and black people in Chicago. You know, I, when the civil rights marches happened, you know, Martin Luther King said something about the racism in Chicago being worse than the racism down south. Right. Uh, yeah, and and so black people were talking to each other. And at a place like Florence's Lounge. People would come first, they'd come every Sunday, some of them from church. Some of them from some of them from from day jobs. I remember guys there in in the overalls from a garage, you know, the, right. the, with their with their name on the pocket. Um, a lot of these people knew each other down south, and and a lot of the songs, you know, there wasn't a big uh, um, reason to do original songs unless you were making records because people really wanted to hear that BB King song from 20 years ago or right. that muddy water song from 30 years ago, because it resonated with them. They remembered where they heard it. It helped them identify themselves. And yeah. when they went to Florence's, it was a celebration of the community. Right. Uh, so 
So people were enjoying the fact that, okay, the big boss man wasn't there. who was mm-hmm. almost certainly white and they could let their hair down and be themselves and, and have fun with this music, which is very similar to what they listened to down South, except louder and more electrified. Right. What do you think um, uh, when you, when you first started the label, you know, okay, we have this, we have this record we made with Hound Dog Taylor. How did you go about getting distribution and, you know, funding to, to, you know, cause anybody can start a label. It's like, can you make it work? You know, now you're 50 years on and you're the, the arguably one of the most iconic blues labels, you know, in, in blues, you know, how, how does, you know, how do you, how, do, how does Bruce take a record and scale it into a business? Well, it's a good question because I started with $2,500. And by the time I had recorded Hound Dog, mastered the record, printed some jackets and pressed mm-hmm. some records, I had a thousand records and no more money. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, w- I was done. If I couldn't sell some of those thousand, I was never making another record. Right. I, but I had a sort of a plan. You know, you asked about distribution. Those days, everything was vinyl. So, instead of having a national distributor like you do now and having them ship all over the country, you had a distributor in every city Mm -hmm. and even in smaller cities uh, because vinyl doesn't move around easily. It's easy to warp or damage. So everybody had a warehouse. So I got in my car and I I was still working for Delmark. I got three weeks off, uh, no pay of course. And Mm -hmm. I started driving from city to city and radio station to radio station. And it was a glorious time in American radio. It was that little window of progressive rock FM radio. Right. When rock had just come onto the FM uh, side of the dial and the DJs were all programming their own shows. There was no playlist. Often there was no music director uh, and anybody could play whatever he or she wanted to. And I remember, for example, driving to Detroit the first day and going to WABX probably about 10 o'clock at night. And a guy named Jim Dalzo was, was on the radio. I think he's still on the radio at a different station in the Detroit area. And I walked in and I said, you know, I, I had a lot of hair then and quite mm-hmm. a bit of beard. And I said, I just made a record by my favorite Chicago blues band. And, and would you play it please? And instead of saying, well, I have to consult with the music director or the program director and look at the national charts, he said, hey man, cool. And just grabbed it and put on, give me back my wig. Right. And, uh, you know, which was uh, how it became how drugs best known song right. and, and gives you an example, a title that lets you know how serious he was about his music. Um, right. And then he put me on the air and interviewed me. Right. Uh, so I did that. And then I went to WRAF and another station. And the next day I went to see the, the distributor that I had picked out for Detroit because mm-hmm. I had a, a target list. And I said, we're getting played on three radio stations in your market. Would you like to distribute this record? Right. And of course I had done all the heavy lifting. So he said, sure. And I took a hundred copies out of the truck of my car, left them in his warehouse and drove to Cleveland. Right. Uh, and, and, and did this over and over till I had distribution over half the country. And then I began contacting distributors because then I could say, look at all these radio stations we're on. Right. So, so it was, it was kind of a plan. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, of course, it involved, you know, sleeping in the car and mm-hmm. and, you know, driving hundreds of miles. I, I think I drove, I don't know, five or six thousand miles in that first three weeks. Right. Uh, and, and but it worked. Right. 
it wouldn't have worked if I hadn't started with this joyful, what I call glorious racket that How Dog Taylor and the House Rockers made. Right. If I had recorded a serious blues artist like Sun Seals uh, first, or a more traditional blues artist like Big Walter Horton, who was the second artist I recorded, probably wouldn't have gotten that reaction. But you didn't have to know anything about the blues to, to feel How Dog Taylor's music. You know, if you liked old school rock and roll, it was plenty yeah. rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it was joyous. It was a, you know, he never seemed like he took himself too seriously. It was just like here, here, here's our act, and and you know, let's have some fun. It was like you said, it was it was design, You know, I always say great records are designed after live shows. It's like you take you take your audience on a journey, and it's just like it's just like opening the doors to a great great live gig, and then it, and then it ends. Well. It's funny you should say that because when I'm thinking about signing artists, a key thing for me is to attend a live performance. Right. And I want to feel what the audience is feeling. I want to know the artist can communicate. And ideally in the blues, you know, if, if, if you really mean it, it's really soul to soul communication. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, let's have some fun together. That's fine. That's a good thing to do. But it, sometimes it's let's, dig into some of our deepest emotions together. Right. Um, you know, I describe, you know, when, when you listen to serious blues, you can be reminded of some really hard times in your life. Right. But then you look at the guy or the gal at the table next to you and they're feeling the same thing. And the right. artist is feeling the same thing. And then suddenly you're not alone with all that, those feelings. You're in a group of people who have felt that together. And, and, and it kind of releases whatever old pain you've got. So I, I call it, think of it as like being a, a sponge. You get wet and then you get wrung out. Right. And wringing out hurts. And then afterwards you feel great. What, are the, uh, what do you see as a, as a producer, label owner? What do, you, what do you see are the greatest challenges facing modern blues today? As in we, the, 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 the electric blues has been around now 70 years, you know, as long as there's, you know, it's, we're long from the days of, Charlie Patton and one of these guitars and, you know, and it, 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 what do you think are the greatest challenges for a modern blues artist today to basically, you know, participate or stick the landing and, and make good blues records? Well, it is very tricky because when I started, I was dealing with artists who had come up in the blues culture, if you like, who had listened to blues from the cradle and, there was a general understanding of what blues was supposed to sound like. Right. Now, the, the, the framework of blues has been heard by people, millions of people all over the world. You know, 12 bars and three chord changes are not right. fresh and new. Right. Um, so you want artists who are committed to the tradition without repeating the tradition. Right. Who, who want to take the music and say, Yes, I want to be a blues man or a blues woman, but I want to do something fresh and I want to do something with stories that a contemporary audience can relate to. You know, my joke with artists is, you know, write a song that starts, woke up this morning and my hard drive crashed. And, right. <laughs> and, 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 and that's exactly what, I, what I'm talking about. I mean, some of my artists, I mean, Toronto Cannon on his new record has a song about health insurance. It's right. funny and serious at the same time. Uh, Shamika Copeland on, on her latest record uh, on Civil War has not only songs about the, the left-right, giant left-right split in the country, right. but also about 
gender equality and uh, you know and making space for people who aren't of uh, you know a majority genders, if you like, about gun control and a very serious song about racism, right? Uh, which she also did on her, a different one on her previous album, right. and um, you know, and I've also got Selwyn Birchwood, who's one of my younger artists, who is is singing about contemporary topics along with all of them are still singing about loving and losing because yeah. those are timeless themes. I also talk to artists, especially the artists who are serious writers and say, surprise me. Mm-hmm. It start you, if you start the song in a conventional way, when you get to the first chord change, go somewhere else. Right. Don't go to the four, go right. somewhere else. Um, and, and, or incorporate a different rhythm than what I'm used to, but above all, sing about contemporary subjects and sing about things that a younger audience can relate to. You know, I got way too much gray hair and, and way too little hair. Right. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm 73 years old. I've been doing this every day for 50 years. Well, I'm not trying to make records for 73 year olds. I'm trying to make records for my grandkids. Right. And, and I want songs that will resonate with my grandkids. So, so it's really hard for an artist because they've got to have one foot in the tradition and one foot in today. And they've got to expand the definition of blues without breaking it, without getting so far that it doesn't feel like blues. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a very, very, it's a hard line to, to, to stay, you know, and I've, I've broken the line many times in my career and my next record would definitely break the line. It, it, it's it's very difficult because when it, when you listen to this the, the subjects like you're saying you know that that the, the original masters were talking about it was a lot of them were deeply conflicted by religion you know oh absolutely yes and and singing the devil's music you know and, and they seem very 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 conflicted by it um where today the role of religion in, in society is in, in my opinion less than it was say a hundred years ago you know, the, the influence of the church in any denomination is less and trying to find subjects to sing about. Cause like you said, you know, I woke up this morning and, and, you know, uh, my iPhone crashed or, 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 you know, like, like Toronto's talking about health insurance or, you know, wh- whatever it, it's difficult to, it's difficult to navigate that without it sounding trite sometimes. And, and it's like, well, if your biggest problem in the world is your iPhone crashing or something like that, like, then you don't really have the blues. So it's, it's, difficult. <laughs> it's really difficult to kind of navigate those waters and still be authentic and try to, like you say, exchange that pain and or, or not pain, but just emotion with with your audience. Well, remember, Albert King said that even the baby in the cradle can get the blues. Right. So so what what hurts you? I mean, yeah, you can have fun with with, you know, I'm, I'm sad about something trivial, uh, but also, uh, you know, sometimes I mean, when I, I'm, I'm you know, chained to my computer, when my computer acts up, it isn't a small thing to me. It's, right. you know, this is my livelihood. Right. Um, and, and this is how I'm communicating with the world, especially, you know, since the pandemic started. Right. So, so uh, you know, my hard drive crashing is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, not as big a deal as, you know, uh, my wife walking out on me, which yeah. thankfully she's never done. Right. But, uh, but it's still a big deal. Um, yes, you can be trite. At the same time, people don't expect 
contemporary subjects in blues. A lot of people who come to listen to the blues basically ex expect a sort of recreation of what's already been done. Right. And, and that's tricky too, because you know blues fans tend to be a little musically conservative. Maybe not your fans, because you've been been pushing the boundaries for a while. Yeah. But but you know, harder core blues fans don't want to hear about, you know, let's get funky. You know, they, they want to hear about let's let's play a shuffle. Uh, right. And, and and so it's it's tough. Um, you know, one of the things that that I saw when I was going to all the black clubs in Chicago is people danced all the time. Right. And now, you know, since basically since white people discovered the blues, uh, of which I'm guilty of being one, uh, you see much less dancing. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is that blues musicians are too often playing songs with old rhythms. Right. And younger people are dancing to different rhythms. So why aren't blues artists looking at hip hop records and dance right. rock records and saying, let's get these beats involved with blues. When B.B. King was recording shuffles in 1954, people were dancing to shuffles. Right. You know, it made, it made perfect sense. So one of the other ways you can get contemporary is you can change the beats up. You can stop giving the people what they want. And then, of course, the gray-haired blues fans will say, oh, that's not blues. Well, that's, that, that was going to be my counterpoint is, is I, I call them, I call the, the loud, I call them the loud minority. It's the small group of people that shout the loudest about what you are and what you're not. And one of the things was when we did Red Rocks for the first time in 2014, uh -huh. there's 10,000 people there. And we did, a, we did one of our theme shows. We did the music of Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. Uh -huh. And, and 10,000 people show up at Red Rocks. And I go, here's the proof of concept. The proof of concept is I'm just a, I'm just a interpreter here, but there, but, but if the, the, the notion of, of what is blues and what is not blues, what is authentic, I always go, look at this crowd. Somebody likes this shit. You know what I mean? It's not, <laughs> like, you, you can't listen to 17 people on an advisory board telling you what, who's going to come and who's not waiting to be anointed by some sort of blues pontiff. You just have to go build the audience and there's no right or wrong. It's, it's, there's never been a right or wrong. It's just, it's just, do people resonate with your music? Do they resonate with you as an artist? And can you entertain them for two hours? And can you maintain the feel of being part of the tradition without right. just aping what's already been done? Right. Uh, you know, uh, if, if somebody, you know, I know artists who are, who do music that's pretty bluesy, who say, don't call me a blues artist. You know, yeah. Don't shove, don't shove me in that box. Well, I want people who say, call me a blues artist, but call me an exploratory, a progressive, uh, right. contemporary blues artist. Um, you know, I, I want them to be proud of the tradition, which I know you are. Yeah. And at the same time, I, I want them to not just say, well, I, let me do this Muddy Waters song as close to the way Muddy Waters did it as possible. Because one thing we both know is you will never do it as well as Muddy did it. No. The, the closest is Bob Margolin. He's the closest to me because he played with him. He was in his band. Well, well sure. And, and, and I love Bob's playing, but at the same time, Muddy was a player and a singer. Yeah. And, and Bob would be the first to tell you that he's not the singer Buddy Waters was. Yeah, and, and in fact, who is? Right. You know, it's not Bob's fault. Right. Uh, and and he, he absolutely understands how Muddy played guitar. 
and he understands the the issue of where you are relative to the the beat which mm -hmm. is something that a lot of guitar players who dabble in blues don't really understand the tension that's created when the you're you're intentionally a little behind the drummer or the tension that's created when the drummer drags the two and the four so right. he's playing it late yeah. and and there's tension between what it should be and and what it is that right. you maybe don't don't recognize consciously but you feel it right. you know i i mean i i remember when i recorded one of coco taylor's albums and most mostly she she felt her road band was good reliable people for the road but not necessarily the people she'd most like to record with right uh you know i mean there are great musicians who don't want to travel or they're great musicians who won't work for the money that that uh road right. blues bands can pay so we went in the studio with a put together band which was fine but then for a couple songs she was using her road band because she right. felt she kind of had to throw him a bone and we had such a terrible time getting the drummer to drag the two yeah. and the four because he was basically a rock drummer and he was feeling like if i drag this i'm not on time and in the right. same way guitar players feel like if they're if they're playing behind the beat they're not playing properly right. but the reality is that Muddy knew he was playing behind the beat, just like John Lee Hooker knew that. I mean, I've heard recordings of John Lee Hooker saying, of course I can play regular changes. And then he does it, you know, he does right. it, you know, John Lee Hooker was famous for making chord changes when he felt like it. Well, yeah. he knew perfectly well where the chord change would normally fall. It just wasn't what he felt. Right. Um, and, and Muddy knew perfectly well how to play on the beat, but it wasn't, didn't feel right. It didn't feel like blues when he played it on the beat. Yeah. It was too, it was literally too square. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if you, if the problem is if you, with the difference between session musicians and road musicians or, 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 you know, specific genre type of drummers or whatever, it's like any session drummer, if you say, hey, I need you to drag the snare back, like in any other session, that would, you'd be chastised and wouldn't get called back, you know? And, and it's just, it's the kind of work that the musicians do before they get into a blues session, which I always say that, 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 that in an open jam setting, a studio, the first, the first musician that says, oh, it's just a blues, it'll be easy. That's the one I, that's the problem child, because it's easy to play bad blues. It's very difficult to play good blues, especially in a what? traditional sense. One of my best friends is Dick Sherman, who also has produced a bunch of records with me, uh, Albert Collins, Johnny Winter, Roy right. Buchanan, uh, amongst others. And we sat down one day just for fun and started listing the number of different shuffle beats that we yeah. do of all of which you could call shuffles. And I think we stopped when we got around 25. Right. And, and if drummers think there's only one way to play a shuffle and believe me, I've heard plenty you do, mm -hmm. you know, they, they should not be attempting to play with a blues band. Right. They, they don't get it. Uh, and, you know, this is another reason why I always like guys playing together in the studio. I hate, you know, I, I made one record. I mean, I, I will tell you because it's a record I don't want people to buy. Right. Um, I, I made the, the, my first Lonnie Mack record, Strike Like Lightning, that Stevie Ray was also, that Stevie Ray produced and, and played on a lot, um, live in the, essentially live in the studio. Right. The second record, 
Lonnie really wanted to make a proper studio record. So everything was cut to a click track, one musician at a time. And, you know, it, it had some soul to it because it was Lonnie Mack and, right. and, you know, he could not bring it. But the tracks were, even with great players, the tracks were stiff. Mm-hmm. And they were stiff because you don't want to play that snare hit exactly at the same time in every verse and every chorus. You want to play it a little differently depending on what's going on around you. Yeah, you, um, have, to, you have to react to the musicians and you have to listen, listen to everyone. So, uh, you know, I don't understand. I mean, I've used a click track occasionally if the drummer said it'll help me not speed up too much. Right. Um, you know, and because, you know, drummers can be very excitable. You know this. Yes, and, yes. and uh, you know, I, I only knew one drummer who slowed down. Everybody, mm-hmm. everybody else tends ah. to speed up. If you listen to How Dog Taylor tracks, Ted Harvey, who was an incredible shuffle drummer with a very simple kit, almost every song picks up tempo. Mm-hmm. Well, that, they didn't think, let's pick up the tempo. It just seemed like the thing to do. It was natural. Right. Uh, you know, you got more and more excited. And of course, if people were on the dance floor, then they could dance faster and faster. Right. So, um, you know, I, I know that Luther Allison told his band, when you can't play any louder, play faster. Right. So he would intentionally, at the end of the song, to create more excitement, he would intentionally speed up the song. Right. But mostly it happens unintentionally. Right. And, and some drummers will say, yeah, a click track will help me to to be on time or they'll have the little, um, you know, the little light sitting right. there on, on the top of the drum to try to keep them on time. But I don't worry too much if a song speeds up because people should play in human time. They shouldn't mm-hmm. play in machine time. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, if you listen to your heartbeat, it's not one, two, three, four, it's gabump, 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 which you might notice is a shuffle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think one so, of the greatest shuffles of all time, the, one of the greatest shuffle drummers of all time is Mick Fleetwood. And he doesn't get enough credit for it because they're one of the Fleetwood Macs, one of their biggest hits, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, is if you stripped all the tracks away and just listened to the drums, it's a great shuffle. It's a certain, it's a British rock type of shuffle, but it's a great shuffle. Well, I admit that I have not sat down with that song and listened to it as a shuffle. Think uh, about it. You hear it on the radio. Just... Because at one point I was like, you know, this is actually a shuffle. It's a blue shuffle, but but it but it's such a pop tune, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and and you know, of course, Fleetwood Mac started as maybe the best of all the British blues bands. Of course, yeah, with with Peter Green. I I would be remiss to not ask you about one of my heroes as a kid, still a hero to this day, who I had the honor of sitting in with, and he was the first of many artists to put the fear of God into a a very young 12 year old Joe Bonamassa, <laughs> the name Albert Collins, who to me, there was, he had one of the greatest delivery systems of the blues of all time. And whatever he did, whatever he was involved in got better because he was there. That was, it, it just, it was just an amazing confluence of, of artistry. And, and he, he, he was, uh, such a nice and unegotistical man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he was just one of the guys. He, he had self-deprecating humor. He was, could often be very quiet, but he was so generous with his bandstand. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when he called you up, well, I don't want you to feel unspecial, but 
if there was another guitar player in the audience, Albert was likely to call him up, even if it was somebody completely unknown, and oh, yeah. sometimes give him too much space. Right. Sometimes the person should have been there for one song, and he was there for three. Right. Um, Albert played, uh, and I think probably a lot of your your listener viewers know this. Albert played in a very strange tuning. Mm-hmm. He played in open F sharp minor. Right. He learned from his cousin, uh, a guy named Wow, I amazed I can remember this a guy named Willow Young in Leona, Texas, who played in his lap. Right. And, and so Albert learned to play in this tuning, and never really learned to play in standard tuning. So he would change he would change keys with a capo. He had yeah. that that special capo all wrapped in electrical tape. Um, One of these. Uh, is it got the little clip thing on it? I can't. I can't. It's got it's got the little. Yeah, I, I remember. You know, it's it's the it's, it's was, almost like a safety pin. Yeah, it's like a safety pin. Right. Exactly. Right. And and uh, so he changed keys with that, and and of course, you know, uh, his strings were very taut in that tuning. Uh, and he had he played with his thumb and first finger bare, and then he'd play. He played loud as hell. Uh, yeah. I remember uh, because I would set his amp for him sometimes before the show. And first of all, it was a Fender Quad Reverb, so it was three hundred watts. You know, right. so it was loud as hell without being turned up all the way. Yeah, yeah. And then and then he set it uh, uh, treble ten, mm-hmm. mid range zero, right. You know, bass zero, right. Uh, volume. 10. 10. Uh, reverb, it varied, you know, depending on the room, but on the low end four and on the high end six. And then he'd adjust off the master volume right. and off his guitar. But he played his guitar wide open and uh, and he would let song, uh, the strings ring. And then he'd, he'd uh, uh, use his right hand to mm-hmm. uh, to cut them down, to cut them off. Right. So the whole side of his hand, his whole, his whole right hand was like one giant callus. And he he told me he used to soak his hands in brine to make the skin tougher. Right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But, but he was incredibly modest and and funny. Um, He, he played with such an aggressive attack, you know, he'd snap the bass string, uh, which was of course always, you know, the open string in the key because yeah. of using a capo um and i can't play guitar really at all but i could sit with his guitar and figure out what the notes were and how he he found his notes uh, yeah. because the capo and the tuning had a lot to do with it but his phrasing was just unbelievable you know mm-hmm. albert loved organ players and right. uh you know um when we did the last album we did for alligator we brought in jimmy mcgriff and it was his dream come true and and one of the things albert did was he had an instinctive great relationship with the downbeat he'd sometimes be ahead of it intentionally he'd sometimes be behind it he'd sometimes be right on it depending on how much momentum he was trying to create with the song because albert was a, a great at building from from verse to filling a solo from verse to verse to verse yeah. and then he had that quiet voice and yeah. and one of the it was and not a big range um and that texas twang of course right. one of the things that dick sherman and i did was that we're very proud of is we made albert much more confident of his vocals albert yeah. grew up at the time when singers like roy brown and winoni harris who could fill a room without a microphone were yeah. the standard and Albert had a quiet voice, but he could tell a story. And oh, yeah. He could put humor in it. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and so 
when when we did Albert's first album, Ice Pickin', it, it was funny because Albert was supposed to, he, we did it in Chicago with a Chicago band because Albert didn't have a working band at that time. Right. You know, um, so we put together an all-star Chicago band and Albert came to Chicago and we, we were going to have a, a meeting the first day about songs and he was going to bring a bunch of songs. Well, the bunch of songs turned out to be two. Right. <laughs> and somebody we needed to find songs for him. Right. And, and as we were listening to songs together, because Dick Sherman has one of the most amazing music collections in the blues world, right. um, we noticed what he responded to. And he responded to singers like Percy Mayfield, mm-hmm. you know, who didn't have heavy, big voices, or Lowell Fulson. Uh, yeah. and, and, and those were the sources that we went to, or, or um, a guy he grew up with, Johnny Guitar Watson. Yeah. Uh, those were the, the, the sources we went to for songs for him. And he was so comfortable singing those songs that he became a much less reluctant vocalist. When I first saw him live in 1974, it was instrumental after instrumental with an occasional vocal. You know, by the time he came to Alligator and we got ice picking, almost every song was a vocal. And and he was felt so much better with that. And he played and sang better because he could use the, the, the quiet vocal and then the dynamics would go up and up and up and he'd go through the gears. So he was starting in first and ending up in overdrive yeah. on, on the solos. And then suddenly he'd break it back down yes. for the next vocal. And, and so he took you on this, this roller coaster ride with the music that was so exciting and so much fun. It, well, yeah, I was going to say, you, it, when you listen to the stuff he did for Capital in the mid 60s, and then when he when he went to Alligator, he became a singer and a great singer. I I, I always loved Albert Collins's voice, and and you know I mean like I wore out like ice picking. I wore out. I I used to, to love that song. Uh, too too many dirty dishes when I get home, you know. And he, and he's and he's telling the he's doing the rap and the story, which is very difficult on record. Easier to do in a live sense because you have a you have a your protagonist and you also have an audience. But but to do that and pull it off so wonderfully on record in a studio environment was it was amazing like kind of glimpse into his personality. Now I'll make it more amazing. Mm-hmm. That was a song I found for him. I heard a, a singer uh, guitar player in San Francisco named Johnny Nitro mm-hmm. who wrote that song, John Newton, and I brought the song to Albert. We had done the session with Jimmy McGriff, and we we needed to do a few more songs. So Albert flew in on the red eye from LA mm-hmm. with no sleep. We went straight into a rehearsal hall and he performed that song and worked up all of the sound effects on his guitar, the right. running water and the scraping the dishes yeah. and all yeah. of that in, in rehearsal, the first day that he ever performed the song. Amazing. We went straight from rehearsal into the studio recorded the song that he had never sung or played before that afternoon. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a wonderful performance. We recorded um, I Ain't Drunk, which is one of his classics, the right. same night. And, and uh, uh, Bending Like a Willow Tree, that was the third song we recorded that night, which is a Lowell Fulson song, yeah. uh, where there was an interesting mistake made that we, we left in, in the record because somebody thought the song was ending uh, and stopped and everybody else kept going. I can't remember. I might have been the bass player, Johnny Gaden. And, and then he found a cool way to come back in. So he just made it sound intentional. Right. It's, it's amazing. And, and, and like you could tell, I mean, like those records you made with him in the 80s were, were everybody who's my age 
all the all basically that was standard issue you know listing the showdown record in 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 particular with robert cray and johnny copeland and 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 albert i mean it was like but the thing was about it wasn't just the performances and the players and obviously it was great songs you curated great songs for 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 your artists i mean like you know that live in chicago mr superheart james cotton i mean like the those songs like those 80s songs are classics to me and, and and it's like those are my classics because that's what i grew up listening to but you 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 put them on and they still stand up to this day with the great songs that came before them well i'm sometimes responsible for the great songs if they're cover versions right um, and the artist is is very often responsible for the great right. song um you know we've got this this 50 years of genuine house rock and music collection coming out. And for that, for Albert Collins, we used a blue Monday hangover from his frostbite album mm -hmm. that, that would originally been a very minor hit in Houston for James Thunderbird Davis. Right. Uh, not a name you hear every day. No. Uh, and, and Albert suggested it. Right. And it, I found it, it was, a, to me, it was a high point of the record. And, that great curation had everything to do with Albert and nothing to do with me or with Dick Sherman. Right. For Showdown, um, all of the artists brought songs. Uh, but what was interesting is how the songs morphed mm -hmm. over the period of the, of the three and a half days when we recorded that record. Uh, and, and I have to give a huge amount of credit to Johnny Copeland because he understood exactly what we were trying to do. So the very first thing that was recorded uh, was the song Black Cat Bone, which mm -hmm. had been recorded as a, a shuffle by uh, a, a uh, lap steel guitar player, I'm sorry, a pedal steel guitar player from Houston named Hop Wilson, very obscure guy. Um, and, and Johnny had brought it in and we thought we were recording it as a shuffle. Well, mm -hmm. the organ broke. We were using an organ because we didn't want, we thought we got three guitar players. The last thing we need is rhythm guitar. Yeah, right. So we were using an organ player, a wonderful player named Alan Batts was, was the player. And while they were trying to fix the organ, everybody was pretty bored. And Johnny Gaden, who might be the best bass player I ever recorded, and, and a hell of a nice guy, mm -hmm. um, started just playing this funky little groove. And Casey Jones, who was a great drummer, uh, sat down and, and found a, uh, a thing to play with it that included leaving out one hit right. that normally would be in. And by the time the organ was, the, oh, and then uh, Johnny Copeland came out and started singing the words. And right. Johnny's producers were there, as was Robert Cray's producer and, and Dick and I. So there was a battle of the producers. Right. And, and his producers came running out saying, no, no, that's a shuffle. You know, you can't do it that way. And Johnny, to his credit, said, sure, I can. I'll show you. Right. And, and, and so by the time the organ was fixed, right. You know, Johnny, you know, and, and, and then he suggested to Albert the little dialogue at the beginning about talking about Hop Wilson with the music going on right. and, and, and where to kick it in. And he was the one who came up with the arrangement with, with Albert singing the bridge section. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I walked all the way from Dallas down to Wichita Falls. Yeah. That was all Johnny Copeland. Right. We were, Dick and I were just sitting there with our mouths open thinking, I mean, I remember Dick turning to me and saying, is this as good as I think it is? And all I could do was nod, you yeah. know, and, and all we did, at least, you know, with, with a lot of the songs was we put the right personalities 
in the studio at the same time. Yeah. And, and they came with the songs. Now the dream that Robert Cray recorded, yeah. uh, you know, that, that beautiful minor blues, he and his, his producer, Bruce Bromberg wrote it in the motel room the night before we recorded it. Wow. You know, he had, he had never sung it and they wrote it as a major slow blues. And at some point, uh, Robert, I believe it was said, let's do it as a minor. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think we did more than two takes of it. And, and he, Robert played great and sang great. You know, Albert took a solo and, you know, Robert Cray started, decided to become a blues musician because of hearing Albert Collins play a dance at his high school. Yeah. And Tacoma Washington. Uh, you know, Albert was his big inspiration in, in becoming a musician. So when Albert took a solo, you know, Robert could not hold, was not allowed to hold back. You know, right. Robert can be kind of a very reserved player, right. you know, but he had to just dig in. And oh, uh, you know, it was it was a sensational performance. And again, I had nothing to do with how good it was. It was all about the musicians. Well, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, a great producer, you know, and I've, in my limited experiences in record production is a great, the great producers either save musicians from themselves or the musicians save the producer from himself or herself. Meaning if it's let, let, let's see where it all defaults first and then make changes, you know, cause it, it the, the, wearing the production hat it's like no one just going this is great let's why aren't we recording this you know and well or conversely it's like we're, we're we're getting off the rails here and let's let's try to you know tidy it up well, normally when i'm producing a record we actually rehearse right uh, you know it, we didn't rehearse showdown at all we did rehearse ice picking mm -hmm. and albert's other records uh, and and the reason we rehearse is not to make it formulaic but rather so that everybody's very comfortable with what mostly it's, it's men. So it's mostly what he's going to play. Right. And then if we want to make a change in the studio, cause we listen back and say, Oh, that, that section isn't working out quite right. We know where we're starting. Right. We, you know, we, we know, we know the point we're at musically. And also if everybody's comfortable, then if the leader goes for that extra verse of solo, because he feels it, then everybody knows to go along with him and feels going along with him. Right. Exactly. Um, I don't like people learning songs in the studio mm -hmm. uh, because they don't play them with as much confidence as if they've rehearsed them. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm not stuck on, we got to do it just like we rehearsed it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, it's, you know, you got to let whatever happens in the studio. I mean, it's like, that's, that's the magic. That's the stuff you can't prepare for. You know? Well, the, 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 Greatest example of that for me was the first record by Ruffhausen by Little Ed and the Blues Imperials, mm -hmm. because they didn't come into the studio to record an album. They came in the studio to record two songs for an anthology. I was right. doing an anthology of younger Chicago artists, but they had never seen a recording studio before. Nobody had ever been in a recording studio before. We had everything already set up because we were recording other bands that day. Right. And so I didn't tell them anything about overdubbing or punching in or, you know, I didn't want to, to, to get them thinking a different way from the way they thought on stage. Right. So, so I just told everybody, you know, turn up as loud as you feel comfortable on stage, you know, get your sound right and let's record these songs. And in about 40, 45 minutes, we had recorded both a couple takes on both songs they wanted to do. 
that, that we were feeling happy with. They were right. not complicated songs. And, and in a fit of incredible prescience, you know, may, maybe the smartest thing I ever said in my life, I said, hey, guys, would you like to cut a few more? Right. <laughs> and, and, and they launched into uh, a show. Right. Um, my wife and I and, and a couple of alligator employees and the engineer were on the other side of the glass in the control room. So Ed thought, well, I've got an audience. And he, yeah. you know, he didn't stay behind the microphone. As soon as it was time for a solo, he was on, lying on his back playing. He was duck walking. He was walking on his toes, you know, yeah. and then running back to the microphone for the next verse. Yeah. Uh, and and he just loved entertaining us. And, you know, I can't dance for shit. And I was dancing. Right. Uh, right. And in the course of the next three hours, they recorded 30 songs. Wow. Uh, I went out after 10 songs and said, you know, something magic is happening. And I, you know, I want, I want to sign you guys. I want to record you and I want to make the record tonight. Right. And I said, what can I do you know, to make it better? And they said, well, if you could get a six pack of beer, that would be great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they just recorded, I think there was one song we did two takes of, and otherwise it was all first takes. And we just sat and listened and picked, you know, the, the best 10 for the album. Um, it, talk about the producer way. having nothing whatsoever to do with the quality of the music. Yeah. You know, I was just an observer. Yeah, sometimes you just got to press record. Before we wrap up, um, I, I, I'm interested because you know we've had many a lunch and uh, and talked about this. You know, I I I I fancy myself a, a business guy and 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 you know all that kind of stuff. But um, talk talk to me about how streaming has affected your business. Now I know doing a little bit of research, you got alligator has somewhere around 300 titles. Um, yeah. And, uh, more like 350. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, having, having a, a 50 year old catalog that that's constantly selling and stuff like that. How, how, how have you navigated the streaming side of it to where, you know, it, it, the writing's on the wall in the next 10 years. I mean, is it really worth even pressing up CDs? Cause nobody's got a CD player, you know, how, how does that, how does that kind of factor into your, your, when you're signing an act and how much money you're willing to invest in certain artists? Well, you know, I've always tried to st stay with the technology. Uh, one of the reasons that Alligator succeeded besides the quality of the music was I made a commitment to CDs when they were a brand new technology. Right. And I, you know, I looked at them, and I said, wow, you can carry them around and they won't break. And, and I figured that, would be able to play them in your car, even though there were no car CD players then. Right. So we we were making CDs in in the mid 1980s when nobody else in the blues was making CDs. Right. I was really sorry to to see the music become digital, uh, and and be uh, able to be moved around on the internet. Um, you know, first because we had all that illegal downloading, right. uh, and then of course iTunes came along and we got. And I have to say they paid us. They pay pretty reasonably. Right. Um, but then streaming came. And, you know, I look at my grandkids and they don't own music. They access music. Yeah. Just like they access movies and they access TV shows. You know, I, they, for some reason, they don't have Kindles or they'd access books. Yeah. Uh, so, so I realized I have to adapt to this. I can't pretend it isn't there. So we got involved in delivering to all the key streaming services very quickly. Now right. it's very it's very well known that the streaming services don't pay much per stream. 
as you know, uh, a lot of the streaming platforms, it's real struggle to find the blues. Uh, you know, you have to scroll around or, uh, you know, if you want to find the latest hip hop hit or dance rock hit, no problem. Right. Uh, they've been very oriented toward youth music and toward singles. So it's been a battle that I've been carrying on to get some of the key streaming services to pay attention, not only to blues, but other adult genres of music. You know, the same thing is true for jazz and for folk and for world music and, and classical, that yeah. they get very short shrift, but all the music is there. Yeah. So the, the good part is that our music that was not available in places like third world countries is now available everywhere. Right. So people in China and India and the former uh, Soviet Union and across Africa can stream the whole alligator catalog. Now, that doesn't mean they are streaming the whole alligator catalog, yeah. but it means it's there for discovery. Right. And I am absolutely confident that people in China will discover the blues. And if one in a million discovers the blues, you know, we'll be we'll be great because yeah. there's so many of them. Right. Uh, and, and I love it that my music is available around the world and all these musicians that I care about so much. And also, of course, uh, the, the um, I'm sorry, I had a technical thing I had to deal with there. Um, also, uh, you know, of course, this means that there's no going out of print. Right. That the music if all goes well, will be available forever. Yeah. And people will be able to discover Hound Dog Taylor in, in 100 or 1,000 years. Right. And, and that feels wonderful because Hound Dog, thinking about his legacy, would probably never have guessed that people would want to hear his music 50 years later. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, I think there's positives and negatives to it. I think the songwriters really get screwed because the, the, the royalty rate for any kind of, unless it's being synced or anything, is, is, you know, you can have 20 million streams and get a check for 1800 bucks, you know what I mean? And it's, and, and, and the streaming services don't even want to pay you that. They think they're paying you too much, you know, it's, it's difficult because a lot of people do rely on that income out that are outside of that don't tour that, that have, you know, either record producers or their songwriters mm -hmm. or whatever. And, and they're just like, uh, can't pay the lights with 1800 you know we can't pay the well, light bill beyond that you know having recorded for 50 years unfortunately there are a lot of artists that on the label who are deceased so right. their heirs are counting on that flow of money right now now one of the things you have to do when you're when you're doing the economics of running a record label is you have to look at how fast you're gonna if you make your money back how fast you're gonna make it back right and and one of the things with streaming services is it's going to take a lot longer yeah. Uh, you know, people I know who know a lot more about math than I do say figure a break even over seven years. Right. You know, seven years till you make a profit. Now, Alligator doesn't have to make big profits, but, you know, we're still a business and I've got 14 people to pay and, you know, half a million dollars a year in royalties to pay and right. I need money to do it. Right. So, so, you know, we need that money coming in. The streaming services supposedly aren't making money yet themselves. Right. So they will complain, you know, well, we, we need a business model where we can make money. Uh, I'm hoping that the value of streams will go up, but I'm not very confident of it. Just this week, 
two of the big streaming services announced that they're moving to uh, better qualities of files, mm -hmm. you know, better audio. Uh, well, they, in the old days of two weeks ago, if you wanted better quality audio, you paid a little bit more. Right. Now, suddenly, your $14.99 subscription will be $9.99. Yeah, so we won't make any money. You won't make any more money than you are. I won't make any money. The artists won't make any more money. But the streaming services are doing this because they're competing with each other. And they, you yeah. know, they, have, to, they have to find a way. You know, if, one, if one of them does it, they all have to do it. Yeah, that's that the Silicon Valley business model. I, I, I never understood how a company could have a $50 billion evaluation and hemorrhage cash. Like it's like, because, because in our business, if we're hemorrhaging cash, the, I, the way I look at it, the value of our business is going down, not up, you know? And, and it's, it's just, it's a, it's a strange time to be in a, you know, cause I, I, you know, I, I'm both sides of the fence. I, I am a record company and I'm also an artist but it, it, it's, you know, you obviously want to sell as many records as you can and get the music out there as much as you can. Mm -hmm. But you, I'm also capitulating the fact that we're making these records at Abbey Road and stuff like that almost for ourselves, you know, and, and maybe like you say, seven years from now, we'll break even on a record that I did when I was in my 30s, you know, and which is okay because it allows us to tour, you know, it's the vertical integration that which, which allows us to, to, to operate, which, you know, it's, it's difficult if you're in a more of a traditional you know, uh, sense, but, um, well, you know, it's, it's hard to think about investing for seven years when you're, you know, a cash poor company. Right. Uh, but, uh, I don't, I don't get why companies like Spotify can say they're making more, so much money and are, are valued. Uh, I'm sorry, let me start again. I don't get why companies like Spotify can tell us every quarter they're losing money and they're valued at billions of dollars. Right. I thought to be valued at billions of dollars, you had to make billions of dollars. That seemed right. kind of logical, but, right. but no, apparently not. You just have to convince people that you will make billions of dollars. Yeah, it's like almost like how a Ponzi scheme works. And I'm not calling them a Ponzi scheme. I'm just saying like they're relying on new money and new investment to come in to fuel this other thing while they be, either build the technology out or, or actually figure out a business model. You know, it's almost like it's almost like doing an encore at the, you know, as your first song and then we'll figure out the rest of the show. Yeah. It's like, wait, a minute. Like, wait a minute. You know, like somebody's going to have a plan here. Anyway, Bruce, thank you for being oh, here. Man. It's always, I, it's always... I, I need to do a commercial. Oh, come on. Come on. Plug, well, plug. This is our 50th anniversary and we're celebrating by releasing ah. this, which I you're probably seeing as a mirror image. Uh, but it says 50 years of genuine house rocket music. Uh, right. And it's uh, it's a three CD set. I'm sorry, I tore this one, which is the only one I have with me. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, and in fact, we had some problems with the wallets, so we had them all remade. So you won't tear yours if you buy it. Well, so it's it's 58 songs uh, mm -hmm. from the entire history of Alligator, handpicked by me, with remastering supervised by me, and sequenced by me. Uh, right. And for vinyl lovers, there's the 24. Uh, track double gatefold version, and this will all be out June eighteenth. Nice. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that for people who are seeing this and have no idea what Alligator is about, oh, and they're all they're all really low price too. Mm -hmm. uh, who have no idea what Alligator is about, this is a great way to step into it. 
And for those of you who love guitar, there are a bunch of guitar players on this record, you know, um, well, tons of them. Congratulations on 50 years, you know, you did it. You're the, you, 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 you've, you know, the, 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 the great blues labels of all time, the Leonard Chesses, and it's like, it's Alligator, you know? And it was every time I would, I would buy an Alligator record when I was a kid, if it said Alligator, if it had the little logo on the bottom right corner, I go, I knew it was quality. I knew it was quality. And, and, and it, was, it was like the same thing when you bought a chess record or, or, or anything. And, and, and I have nothing but the utmost respect for you. And I, and I value our friendship very much because- So do you know, I. Thank, thank you. And um, you, know, you invited me on the cruise and thank you for that. And you've brought a lot of our artists on your cruise. And I appreciate that because I know you're all about trying to turn your fans on to the whole tradition uh, and, and not just to have them be your fans, but have them be uh, blues fans, blues fans for old blues, blues fans for new blues and future blues. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love nothing more than, you know, my fans going, hey, I never heard of Selwyn Birchwood until he was on your live from Nerdville show. Or I have, you know, we just interviewed uh, Curtis Soldado. You know, it's, it's like it's like there's room for everybody, because if if people are fans of Eric Clapton, maybe they'll be fans of me. If they're fans of me, they'll be fans of uh, Shamika Copeland. And it's a it's an entire community, you know, and and and. The, the it's the, the whole concept of strength in numbers if everybody you know if there's a if there's a great scene that's that everybody can participate in it's better than just being the pied piper going hey look what i did by myself you know and i'm going to keep it all for myself it's that's not <laughs> and not since i've known you have you been any of that no you've always no. been about sharing oh, and uh, yeah. you know and and i i really appreciate it and a lot of other people uh, on in the blues community you do too and they know what you're made of so feel you know i'm patting you on the back in hopes that you'll leave this part in when you edit and right. uh and because that's really the way we feel about him folks i i i appreciate it ladies and gentlemen bruce aguilar from the great alligator records this has been live from nerdville tune in next week for another exciting guest